Welcome to the Game Deflators Podcast. My name is John, and I am joined by our co-host, Ryan. This is Season 2, Episode 2. During the Game Deflators Podcast, we discuss the gaming industry, recent pickups, and we review games of a specific point on the value and playability of those titles. Ryan? Yeah, so this week we're going to be covering Rival Schools, a arcade release back in 97, but we're going to be covering the 98 port for PlayStation. Yeah, sounds good, man. So, overall, Rival Schools, we'll get into a little bit deeper, but to give you kind of a preview, uh, the overall game, like Ryan said, was a port from the arcade in Japan, uh, which was released in 97. It was later released in 1998 as a port on the PlayStation 1, with a title released on the Dreamcast as a a secondary title called Project Justice. So, uh, and that was released, I believe, in 99, if I'm correct. Um... To get started with our general podcast, we're going to go ahead and discuss some of our recent pickups. So I'll go ahead and get started. Uh, One thing I was bragging to you about uh, last week is I picked up a copy of City of Lost Children on the PS1. Pretty uncommon title. Uh, I haven't looked too much into it in all honesty, but it appears to be kind of a, um, not necessarily an action game, but kind of like a dramatic uh, third person type of game where you go around and get clues and whatnot. kind of set in what appears to be like a post-apocalyptic type setting and uh, from my understanding it's also based off of a movie so I'm considering uh, checking out that movie prior to playing the game itself. Um, I will probably pop that title in 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 a few weeks and kind of get a better understanding testing it to to really get a an idea on what the title is but it was a pretty cheap pickup and uh, ended up getting it with a manual and the actual disc no back unfortunately and the game's ranging anywhere from 60 to 100 bucks, so pretty interesting title. Uh, and then I also picked up a copy of Shadow Makers on the PS1. And uh, that complete in box ranges anywhere from like $10 to $11, so nothing crazy. But that's more of a uh, kind of a, a shoot first-person, not first-person shooter, but you know when you're in like a spaceship and you're going around and you're attacking targets, kind of like that top-down gunner type of game. Like a shmup? Sure. So top-down gunner type game, but it's in the third third person type of not third person, geez, first person type of setting, and you're just shooting enemies, collecting items and such as you go down. So it's like the a levels. Star Wars kind of trench run kind of look. Yeah, yeah, in a way. That's the previews and such that I've seen. That's what it is. So um, definitely something I'm gonna be interested in playing on uh, on my PS3 here, and uh, hope is ah hopefully have the uh, graphics kind of smoothed out uh, with the PS3. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, so that first game they picked up is that like a official like licensed tie-in game, kind of like you'd see with like Marvel movies today. You know, honestly, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I was just looking up the uh, the storyline itself, and from what I heard, it was based on a movie. And th- there's not much that I've really looked into it outside of that. Okay. Well, we'll check that out and we'll talk about it a little more. So I just picked up the Valkyria Chronicles 4 demo. Uh, Valkyria Chronicles, for those that haven't played it, it's a pretty good series. I've only played the first one the uh, on the PS3 long time ago. And then they released some sequels on handheld. And uh, I don't think I don't think 3 ever made it to the States, but 4 is looking great. Picked it up on the Switch. It's a tactical RPG, but not a grid base. So you've got 
A certain amount of actions you can use per turn. Each time you use an action, you take control of a soldier in a third-person view. Now, you run them around the map. You've got, like, a limited amount of movement. You've got to try to take cover and avoid attacks of opportunity being made at you by crossing sight lines of enemies. And then once you're in position, you then transition into a first-person shooter to pop off your shot and try to get at the enemy. Uh, it's uh, beautiful, kind of watercolory, kind of pencil-y art style uh, in the cutscenes. It's uh, very anime, so anybody that's into those anime games, this is definitely going to be up your alley. And the best part is the demo is a full first two chapters of the game. And once you buy the game, you just unlock the rest of the game. So everything that you do in the demo, you can treat it just like you're playing the game. If you really like it, you just transition right through and keep on going. It's uh, it's kind of a really good way to get the word out and release on uh, a new game and give everybody a real shot to check it out <clears throat> instead of just having a snippet. You know, it's like a full-on experience, and I like that. Yeah, man. Uh, Valkyrie Chronicles and all that, and that specific series is a or a series that I've wanted to play for many years, and I just really, I've got the titles, I've picked them up over the years, and I just haven't really gotten my hands dirty with them, so I'm definitely interested to hear what you have to say. I've got the, um, the PS3 copy of that series as well um, that I got many years ago, and uh, it's always looked pretty beautiful as far as the overall uh you know graphics on the on the game are so yeah uh, i definitely am interested to hear more as you go through it yeah i'll uh i'll be picking that up and playing it a lot more in the uh much anticipated coming weeks before red dead comes out and we kind of all lose ourselves to that so uh yeah i'll, I'll be reporting on it next week Sounds good, man. Yeah, and I looked up a little more on uh, City of Lost Children, so it is, in fact, based off of the a French film that was released uh, years ago, and apparently the game itself uh, doesn't hold as much of a, um, you know, it doesn't stay as true to the film as it should, and is a little slower paced, which is interesting, because, you know, titles like that, I've always found it odd that you have just what comes out to be an uncommon or rare title in gaming or collecting and when you really look at the overall gameplay, you're like, wow, this is complete crap. Why would I want to play this? And so just kind of reading a little bit more on those previews a little bit ago, uh, kind of meets what I said. It's going to be more task-based. You're walking around within a city and trying to complete various tasks. And, um, you know, we'll see how it is. If it's a quick quick title that I can beat within a, you know, a few days, I'll probably go ahead and give it a shot and uh, report back to us as to how it is. Yeah, and uh, let us know how that movie is, too. Yeah, that one I definitely need to check out. So what are you actually playing right now, John? So last week we discussed uh, I was playing Little Nightmares on the PS4, and uh, I finally beat the DLC after a game crash. So that kind of sucked. I got to the final part of the uh, last DLC, and next thing you know it just crashes and says, we've experienced an error, and it shoots me into the beginning of a DLC again. So that kind of sucked. Um, but yeah, I ended up beating Little Nightmares. Great game. I picked it up for around 15 bucks new. Um few months back and i gotta say it's definitely worth the value uh, that's a title that i got at least a good eight nine hours of gameplay out of um, i enjoyed the puzzles of the title the overall scare tactics that are involved in that game are pretty decent considering it's you know a side scrolling horror type game um, you know as i said in the last podcast you're jumping on drawers and just about anything you can find uh, that's 
you know, climbable to make your way through various parts of the level. Lots of good puzzles. To give a little more information as far as a DLC, which is uh, my key focus this week, um, that one had a few more difficult puzzles, actually, in the main story, which was kind of refreshing. Uh, the main story, I blasted through that within the span of maybe four or five hours. The DLC took me almost equally as long for about half the amount of content. Uh, one of the key puzzles uh, that I ended up experiencing towards the end was you had to take statues from a variety of different rooms and essentially solve your way to find those statues and then grab them and walk all the way to the beginning of a level and place them in certain slots that matched. And uh, that progressed you on to the final portion of the game. And then the ending itself had a pretty good twist, which was pretty cool. Um, the other thing that I've recently started is Elemental Gimmick Gear on the Sega Dreamcast. So it's a title that's been sitting on my shelf for quite some time. And I hadn't found a Dreamcast game that I've you know, really wanted to just kind of sit back and play. Uh, Elemental Gimmick Gear is probably going to get me about 20 hours of solid gameplay, maybe 30, depending on how in-depth I want to get with, uh, you know, leveling up and such. Um, but it's essentially an action RPG. It takes place 5,000 years into the future, uh, where this city essentially finds uh, a mech, um, you know, a mech machine or whatever, with a human being still inside of it. And so there's this huge mystery after excavating this mech and how this guy is still intact. And, um, you know, I've only played about 30 minutes of it so far, so can't really get too deep into what's going on. But in the limited experience I've had, um, kind of slow gameplay with your actual mech as you're walking around. You have the ability right now um, to punch with the mech. You can spin with the mech and then you collect. It appears that when you're actually spinning with your mech, it kind of depletes a, um, a gauge that has, I guess, kind of fuel in a sense. And so each time you kill enemies, you'll either pick up at this point in the game uh, currency or a variety of like little fuel balls that kind of increase your gauge as you go along. Um, so far from what I've seen, you have the ability to increase that gauge. You can do upgrades and such with your mech, uh, which is pretty cool. And um, also there's instances where you jump out of your mech like you can only go into certain buildings out you know not being in your mech which is understandable so they have like these little people signs and you jump onto these things and then you pop out of your mech and you traverse little areas of a town so uh, that's pretty cool overall right now i'm very happy with the experience i've had in that time frame the music scores are great it actually reminds me kind of a chrono cross back on the ps1 so um, I love the musical score so far. The art style is very colorful. The cutscenes are an anime style cutscene. So pretty happy with what I'm playing right now, and uh, excited to see how that progresses in the in the next few weeks. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I um, I'm a sucker for mech games. I'm really excited for uh, that new mech game coming out for the Switch. The Demon cross or something like that i can't remember the name of it but yeah uh i've always been into mech stuff so i'm looking forward to seeing how that goes because you know maybe i'll borrow it from you once you're done do you have a dreamcast no but you do <laughs> so um i i'm still hammering away at the messenger i'm pretty much done with the game i think all i have left is the final boss but i'm running around and i'm actually trying to do a full completion on this game I don't know why it's not usually my my kind of thing to 100% a game, 
but I find the challenges of the game to be worth my time just for the fun of trying to get through it all. You've got these challenge rooms all over the map that, I mean, all you get on the other side is a green coin, and I think that there's some kind of bonus that you get for getting all the green coins, but I don't think it's worth whatever it is. From what I've heard, I've been told that it's really not a great completion bonus, but I just like going into the rooms and figuring out how to get through them, and I, I'm really digging the platforming and I'm really digging getting better at the platforming every time I go in and figure out how to get around these platforming challenges. It really feels like I'm learning constantly and getting faster and faster as I navigate all these areas. So I'm I'm still hammering away. I'll definitely be done with it next week and on to Valkyria Chronicles so that I could talk about something else finally for a change. Yeah, man, I'm pretty stoked. Uh, Valkyrie Chronicles for sure, and then I definitely want to hear uh, how the messenger ends up for you as far as, you know, the completion of that game. So uh, one thing we'd like to discuss in our segments here is news in the industry. So one of the key things that I found this week that was pretty interesting was Sony backpedaling and going into uh, crossplay with Fortnite this week. So really wanted to kind of hammer out on how does this affect Sony in the long term and do we think that this hurts Sony or do we feel that this is actually a benefit to Sony? So Ryan, I've got my opinion on this. Where would you want to start out on it? So I know that people have had a long kind of standing grudge with this whole no cross-play with Sony policy. And, uh, you know, I'm not a Fortnite player. I appreciate that people want to be able to play together and that we live in a time where it's not like being an Xbox person or a PlayStation person limits your pool. It sh you should be able to bring everybody together for these, especially if it's the developer uh, that wants it to happen and it's the platform that's stopping it. That seems like, you know, a little bit of a limitation. I don't understand really how it's hurting Sony to not let people crossplay. Because it's nobody's going to go out and buy a PlayStation if they already have an Xbox just to play with their friends unless, you know, unless they would already do that because they have enough money. Like, they're not encouraging themselves to get more sales by doing that. So, I think it's a great move. I, I don't understand why they didn't do it sooner. So, uh, I think the main reason why companies like Sony and such did not want to do this sooner is because when you really think about it, once the cross-platform is in place, the, the ability to play, those consoles are now just kind of a, a dumb machine in a sense. It's kind of like a computer in that sense in that, you know, you have the ability to play with a variety of different servers and different people, right? So with the PlayStation console now being able to do cross-play, there was that fear that essentially people would say, well, what's the point of purchasing a PlayStation when I can just buy an Xbox and just play with my friends on PlayStation and I really want this Xbox? What I'm seeing, though, is this is a huge... Um, it's not a blow to Sony. It's actually a big win. And people aren't considering this from the standpoint of Microsoft already is in second place uh, and probably going to be surpassed by the Switch not too long from now uh, in sales uh, compared to Sony. And so Microsoft already has, from my understanding, cross-playability with the... Windows platform, so you can play, you know, via Steam and whatnot onto uh, the Xbox with different people. 
And so Sony being as hesitant as it was, when you really kind of think about it, Sony has a ton of exclusives, and they've completely dominated in this uh, console generation of exclusives. So at the end of the day, if I had the choice of being able to play with my friends on Xbox and own an Xbox, but I could also play with those friends and have a PlayStation, wouldn't you think that I'm more likely to buy the PlayStation because I have a higher, you know, there's a greater chance of me getting better exclusives, and I can always pick up other titles on my computer? So that's that's really the mindset that I've kind of put into this is... Uh, you know, this really does help Sony. It expands their horizons for their players. It allows for more flexibility. And of course, if you want the best exclusives, according to Sony, you're going to go to their console anyways. You're not going to buy an Xbox. Yeah, I mean, really, the the killer exclusive app is what sells consoles. And uh, I mean, you know, the, so the crossplay is really just for those you know, those multi-platform titles, and yeah, it's definitely the right move for them. And I think that, you know, Sony has a lot else going for them that they are working towards, and I want to see how this cross-play, like, if this is going to bleed out into other things, I want to see where this is going to go and how it's going to affect the VR market, because we know that Microsoft has access to VR through, you know, PC, but there's no Xbox for the VR. I know that they were working on the HoloLens, but I haven't seen or heard really much about the HoloLens in a while, and I don't think that that's going to be really, you know, a competitive aspect for that, but I want to see if people can go on PlayStation and play with PC on, you know, a a VR game like if you're going to do multiplayer and you're going to do it cross-platform let's see how far that goes yeah definitely an interesting thing to keep into the future on this and then I do want to point out though that the Fortnite uh, cross-play right now Sony I believe is just in beta mode right now so this isn't even a hundred percent set in stone uh, that they're going to continue doing cross-play so I guess what they're looking to see right now is uh, you know how this works out what the reception is and maybe a, a long-term uh, strategy on this is to see if it does in fact uh, affect console sales does it boost those console sales because now you can play with your friends on xbox if you haven't purchased one and you can play spider-man god of war and horizon zero dawn yeah so i'm wondering with uh, nintendo and their use of crossplay and their launch of their online service recently i wonder if they're going to be competing in this space too and allowing more multiplayer because i know that nintendo releases a lot of you know, those killer app, just Nintendo exclusive games. So there's not as much opportunity for cross-play outside of games like Fortnite because you're never going to get, you know, Call of Duty, Battlefield, that kind of stuff on Switch realistically anytime soon. Well, I mean, I think you will. I, you've got Dark Souls Remastered just launched on Nintendo Switch or supposed to be launched. I mean, kept up with that since I beat them already. Um but you are gonna. I would feel that they're gonna move in that general direction as well to allow crossplay. Uh, the thing is, when you think about it from a multiplayer perspective, uh, one thing that I always kind of felt when I was growing up and playing, you know, the original Xbox and such online and PlayStation Two online, was that Xbox, in my thought, was always like if you wanted to play multiplayer games and have a great time. I always felt that there was just a, a greater crowd on the xbox console or on their servers granted you had a bunch of 12 year olds that were talking about sleeping with your mom the entire time on there but 
Uh, besides that point, I truly enjoyed my online play with Xbox versus PlayStation. I'm interested to see how it works with Nintendo, considering their chat app is like literally an application on the phone. And are you going to have players during a cross-play, um, you know, say there's a title they want to play and they have a choice between three consoles, are they going to go to Nintendo and deal with multiplayer that has an application uh, for its chat service, or are they going to migrate over to something like a PlayStation or Xbox because there is no, you know, just the functionality of online play, I feel is going to be a lot smoother on one of those other two consoles. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can see that. I mean, especially with the ability for some of these games, especially like, you know, Fortnite's really kind of at the center of this because it's pretty much like, you know, the hottest thing ever right now. So... Like, I keep seeing all these commercials for Fortnite, you know, for the Samsung Galaxy. You know, they're selling it as a, hey, this is for you to play Fortnite on and trying to appeal to, you know, the gamers and the youth with that. And I think that the ability to play anywhere is really migrating quickly from being an advantage that the Switch has to competing directly with these really powerful mobile devices. And like, personally, I have a Sony phone and, you know, it's got some connectivity to PlayStation that you can use, um, kind of like the Vita had, but with, you know, Microsoft, they haven't really done super well in the mobile community, but this could be an opportunity for them to, instead of releasing a, you know, exclusively gaming handheld device to move into the mobile space and try to come out with, you know, the Xbox phone that plays your games, connects you to Xbox Live, does everything that, you know, the Switch should be able to do, but, you know, in a in a big old phone screen, you know, you get some of those six-inch phones, you could do a whole lot with those now, and that could be really where mobile gaming and crossplay being able to play anywhere with anyone that's kind of really where i think ultimately it's going to wind up going yeah and you know honestly with xbox that's kind of been their their montage in a sense right xbox one has in its all-in-one console so it's kind of surprising that they haven't uh released something you know in the nature of what you're speaking of so outside of some news um Let's go into our inflation deflation. So last week after our podcast recording, we went ahead and played uh, Rival Schools on the PS1. As we discussed earlier, this is a 1998 port of the 97 arcade version that was released in Japan. Uh, the overall premise of the game is you have several schools uh, that are experiencing kidnappings uh, amongst their students and their teachers. And uh, the students are obviously trying to figure out what's going on, and they come to the conclusion that it is one particular school that is, um, you know, scheming behind the scenes and making this all occur. And so you obviously pick your characters and you battle along in arcade mode uh, to where you finally get to be the final boss and then the final, final boss, who is actually the mastermind behind the entire issue. Um, the game itself, uh, Ryan, I guess we can go kind of in bullets here on our feelings in the title, and we can do a you know, comparison amongst one another and decide where we kind of lie as far as uh, positives and negatives. So the first thing I did want to cover was the art style of the title. How did you feel about the art style of Rival Schools compared to other games released in that era? Uh, you know, it's anime as hell. 
It's got uh, really nice character models. It's uh, an early 3D polygonal fighter. And it has a very... Um, it's made by Capcom, so it has that real street fightery kind of feel with the character designs. Everybody's, uh, for the most part, pretty unique. Uh, they are all Japanese school students, so you do get a lot of kids in, you know, like a school uniform. But what really separates everybody is they focus a lot on kind of archetypal characters that you would see from like an anime and really focus on kind of the club aspects of Japanese schools and bring that into the design. So the things that they're wearing and the things that they are using in their attacks and in their character designs are a volleyball outfit, a baseball player, uh, the kid that doesn't really get along with anybody and he's kind of a punk and a bruiser kind of like Yusuke from Yu Yu Hakusho you know kind of the street thuggy kind of guy and it really paints a good picture of all of these characters feel like they belong together as a collective set of fighters and they really fit into this world yeah I totally agree with you on that um one thing I've always enjoyed is watching anime and such and you know, your point on that and where they're all kind of in those social groups and clubs really kind of hits the the nail on the head. I mean, you have Batsu who kind of has that tough guy type of feel and is he, in a sense, the brooding popular guy. And uh, you do have, you know, uh, one of the characters has glasses. You can tell he's kind of the, the quiet guy in the back, but he's a total badass. And so, um, you know, the Tiffany, the boxer. So it, to Ryan's point on the art style, it's very much polygonal, um, lots of great colors, anime-style anime coloration uh, throughout the game. The cutscenes are all in anime, um, very Japanese, and, you know, really, I, I like that in a fighting game. It really kind of um, brought back a lot of memories, at least for me playing it as a kid. Uh, next thing to talk about is a fighting combo. So you and I are not exactly the best judges of character when it comes to fighting games in terms of the actual fighting uh, as far as nailing combos down. And granted, we only had a few hours to you know, sit back and play this game. But in the little bit of experience that you had, uh, what was your thought on the actual fighting combos and the special moves that are tied into those combos? So, yeah, not a big fighting game player. Um I'm probably going to fix that, try to pick up Dragon Ball Fighters on the Switch when that comes out. Get me some get me some fighting game chops. Um, I thought the combat was, it was pretty straightforward. You know, you've got your uh, two punch attacks, two kick attacks, and then you've got some specials on the triggers. And you build up meter, and you've got the three different executable specials one is like a combo with a teammate and then the others are just kind of like a uh, more of a standard kind of special move like a hadoken or so um you still have the like roll right you know punch for special moves like that that don't take meter just like your normal executable specials and I was really trying to focus and hit those, you know, Street Fighter normals in there to get, you know, those uh, 
rolling rights, rolling lefts with my, I can't think of the actual name of them, but, you know, tried to get in the specials and stuff. And it was a little bit difficult for me to nail the inputs. I don't think that it was the game. I think it was mostly just me and my lack of skills with fighting games. So I thought that the combat was was pretty good. Um, the blocking was hard for me, too. <laughs> I think it was mostly just my struggle because John beat me up and down in this game, and he didn't seem like he was having too hard of a time with it. I mean, you got me on a few, a uh, few of the matches we played, but yeah, on the fighting itself, I've I've never been good at nailing combos down. Um, outside of uh, things like Virtua Fighter and um, let's see, other time he's played Soul Calibur. Soul Calibur is so easy to land combos; it's unbelievable. Um, so yeah, a lot of these games like Street Fighter and, and Tekken, for example, I've always been absolute trash in landing combos. I'm not a very good judge in terms of that. Um, but from the little bit of experience that we did have, uh, the combos, in a sense, the ones that we were able to land were super simple to land. And the special moves are just way too easy, in my opinion. Uh, maybe that's a configuration aspect that we really just didn't tie into. But you know, if you're looking at your meter and it's up to eight, and you're in your next round, and all I got to do is press L2, and I'm hitting you with my combo, and an L1 hitting you with another, grappling you, and just knocking you out. Um, I don't find that to be very appealing, and it's probably, um, again, more on us and just what we did for the actual configuration of the gameplay, and just not messing with the settings. But, you know, if that's a straight-out, like, standard arcade setup, um, in my mind, that's just not, you know very fun in a sense of having that kind of uh, crazy handicap and being able to just land massive combos on people without any anything whatsoever else like you can sit in a corner and just punch air and it boosts your meter up or you can take hits and it boosts your meter up so granted it's fair for both sides but for a player that can't play fighting games it truly is like a crazy handicap in the game well you can also see it as uh being able to build up meter and blow it with like an easy one punch special, you know, it's a way for somebody who's maybe not going to get in there and be able to like execute like a well put together combo to just, you know, abuse their meter a little bit more because you get eight bars of meter. So it's like you've got crazy access to these specials. You throw them out left and right. I mean, if you're fighting a better player, they're going to block that stuff. They're going to work their way around it no matter what. But you know, at least it kind of gives you a chance to play catch up and throw in some good damage without really being too skilled. Yeah, that's true. I mean, anybody can kind of just pick it up and play and I guess have a good time, which, yeah, you know, I didn't think about that. That actually does make some good sense, which does get into the difficulty aspect. You know, the arcade mode itself, I found to be pretty simple uh, while we were playing it. Nothing crazy on the opponent's side of things. I know we had one string where we just kept getting demolished, and I think that was just a string of bad luck and flipping the controller to one another uh, during the arcade mode. Um, but the overall difficulty of this game, I think, is pretty easy for the most part. Yeah, I mean, you know, without having a, a real chance to go all the way through it, I think that it was pretty, you know, easy to blow through the first half of the arcade mode we did hit kind of a stopping point where we needed to kind of wrap up and uh it just wasn't really worth beating our heads against the opponents anymore but i i didn't it didn't feel like an insurmountable challenge it just felt like a time management challenge 
Yeah, exactly. I played the game as a, in high school and actually in elementary school. And in my experience with this game, I've beat the arcade mode numerous times years ago. Uh, it's, you know, overall, it's actually a pretty good story um, as part of the arcade and lots of cutscenes and such uh, that are with that anime style. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're older, we're slower, our hand-eye coordination isn't where it should have been. Um, and yeah, I think overall, if we kind of hammered a little more time on it, we'd probably be okay. So, uh, I guess wrapping up our inflation deflation, the game right now, Rival Schools on PS1, is sitting around $35 for a loose copy. It's a two-disc game, has an arcade mode and then like an evolution mode, so it's, um, kind of has like tournament-style settings and whatnot in there, which are pretty cool, actually, when you think about it. But, uh, like I said, 35 bucks loose, complete, range in from about... 54 to 55 dollars and then uh with case and disc it's probably sitting in that midway point of about 40 so given those numbers and given our experience playing the game where would you set this as far as an inflation deflation is it worth the price point and we're going to go based on loose because that's uh, anybody that wants to play the game uh, that would be generally the way that you would go if you just want to play it so at a 35 dollar price point loose would you consider this inflated or deflated? Um, you know, it was it was a fun time that I had with the game, but I'm not, you know, I don't have any nostalgic love for this game like you do, and I don't think that I would pay $35 for it. I think, you know, I could probably get some good fun out of it, but I think that there is enough else out there that if I was really going to shoot for something around that era like i'd rather pick up like a you know an older 2d fighter than one of these early 3d fighters and i just don't think that it was gripping enough for me i love the art style and i really like what they were doing with it but i just don't think that i would pay 35 dollars for it yeah i'd have to agree with you man on um a nostalgic level i love the game uh if i were to come across a copy and not have it right now would I pay $53 for complete in box? Probably not. I might pick it up for 30 complete in box if I had the opportunity. Um, only because it is nostalgic in that sense. But you're right, man. There's a ton of other fighters that are on the market that have come out over the years. And while it does offer a pretty cool um, you know, experience, uh, I don't see it being worth 35 bucks for a loose copy of this game. If I saw it for 20 or so, and I really wanted to get a cool experience and bring my friends over and do, you know, some crazy things as far as tournaments and everything else just for, a, you know, a weekend. Yeah, 20 bucks would probably be worth it to have some fun with that and obviously pick it up and play occasionally from there. But yeah, I would consider I would consider this game uh, to be totally inflated at this point. You heard it. Inflated. Inflated. So one other thing that we didn't touch upon with Rival Schools, though. Uh, is the game only had one sequel, Project Justice, released on the Sega Dreamcast. And then I want to say the creator back in like 2013 or so had mentioned that he does want to at some point, you know, create a third installment. If a third installment of this game was created, would that be something that you would purchase? You know, given all the updates in fighting games over the last uh, 20 years since the release of this game, and my desire to try to get involved with fighters a little bit more this is something that i would definitely want to see a modern take on i want to see these characters 
you know, fully realized in a 3D fighter as opposed to a lot of the 2D anime fighters that you get now. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see where they go with something like that and having a uh, a better take on an old idea is always something that I'm wanting to see. So I, I would totally check it out if they came out with a new one. Yeah, and being that it's uh, officially today as we're recording on September 30th, the 20-year anniversary of a game being released uh, in the United States now would be a perfect opportunity to make some sort of announcement, but who knows? So a little preview into our inflation deflation of next week. Uh, we are actually going to be playing Expendable on V Dreamcast. It's a, uh, a top-down shooter uh, where you collect a variety of different items and obviously bolster your weaponry as you try to kill aliens uh, that have taken over your planet. And you play as a recruited super soldier. And obviously, with us both playing, it's going to be two super soldiers taking on hordes of aliens and trying to take them out. Let's do it. Yeah, so I'm pretty stoked about that title, man. Uh, well, Ryan, I think uh, that should conclude our episode this week. Is there anything else you want to add, man? No, I think that's all we got for this week. Uh, everybody stay tuned. Check out the Facebook. Uh, keep responding to you know all the different news and stuff that we'll be posting throughout the week. We want to see what you think about what we think about what's going on in the industry. And uh, other than that, you know, just have a good week, play some games, and uh, check us out next week. Thanks, everybody. Sounds good, man. Well, this has been John. And Ryan. And we are the Game Deflators. Game Deflators.